You're listening to WNHHLP, 103.5 FM New Haven, streaming live at www.newhavenindependent.org and broadcasting live from our offices on Elm Street. This is another episode of All of Us with Greg Grinberg. Good afternoon, New Haven. This is All of Us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. In our last two episodes, we spoke with Steve Pincus about the Declaration of Independence, the ideas expressed in it, and what it can tell us about our current political situation today. In particular, our right to reform our government and our responsibility for what our government does. Last week, we spoke with Gary Winfield, state senator from Connecticut, and uh, we spoke about what we can do in Connecticut to keep our own plate clean and set an example for the rest of the country in a time when we are one of the very few blue states remaining. My guest today is Anya Grainer, head of media for the climate mobilization and a climate change activist. Anya, thank you so much for being on the program today with us. Thank you for having me. So just to start with the basics, what is the climate mobilization and why do you guys exist as an organization? Yeah, we are uh, a relatively young, um, about a two-year-old organization. Uh, We founded at the People's Climate March in uh, about two years ago. Um, and we kind of existed, uh, existed, we exist, um, (laughs) in response to, uh, I guess, a void that was seen by our founders in the climate movement and in the country, um, which is a kind of just the, the widespread kind of pervasive denial of just how bad the climate crisis really is, um, and the unwillingness to talk about that and kind of all of its human implications uh, on behalf of most other organizations out there. So, um, and to combine that, so I guess the mandate of sort of radical honesty about where we are, um, no kind of euphemisms, no um, shielding people. Um, A lot of organizations have operated with the understanding that you can't talk about the full scale of the climate crisis because you'll turn people off and you'll freak people out and, um, they'll just shut down. And um, Margaret Klein Solomon, our executive director who founded it, um, actually has a PhD in psychology. And um, basically her take on all this is that panic and uh, dissociation are not the only responses that people have to emergencies. We're actually wired to kind of go into this emergency mode where we can get done way more than we thought we could get done. And that you can't kind of trigger that experience in people if you won't tell them that they're in an emergency. Um, so that's kind of part one. Um, and then part two is sort of just spreading the truth about what it would actually take to resolve the climate crisis at this very late stage in the game. Um, and the analogy that we rely on that for is um, a World War II scale mobilization, which is uh, an idea that's gone increasingly mainstream. It's kind of a catchphrase about resolving climate change, but um, I think that we've tried to treat that idea with kind of a rigor and a comprehensive look at what 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 we actually did before World War II and what that would look like now uh, in response to climate change. So um, that's us in a nutshell. <laughs> Absolutely. And so 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 just to see, just to make sure that I have this right. So the the, the context that that mm-hmm. you guys uh, sort of found yourselves in right at the time of your founding is that organizations that the environmental organizations were kind of sugarcoating the magnitude of the crisis um, in their messaging to the public uh, with the idea that the public sort of can't handle the hearing the full the full story, essentially. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. I think, you know, it's sort of either sugarcoating the crisis or kind of sugarcoating the solutions, kind of um, putting forth what in the past we've called kind of gradualist um, policy or just sort of putting forth these proposals with the idea that they'll be kind of acceptable to the political establishment in some way um, that, you know, a lot of these deadlines that you hear about, um, like 80% reductions on, say, like 1990 levels by 2050, you know, that's mm-hmm. an example of a, like, a I don't know, whatever the numbers are, but um, the kind of things that you hear about proposed solutions to climate change or the kind of advocacy that says, we have a huge crisis and terrifies you and then says, now go home and put solar panels on your roof and, you know, like change your light bulbs and kind of carry on being this sort of like law abiding consuming citizen. Um, And I think that 
our um yeah i mean our take is sort of to not not sugarcoat exactly what the solution um at this point has to look like um which is a great deal of collective action and i mean sort of a lot of collective sacrifice on some level um whether that means I mean, I think that what, what we're seeing at Standing Rock that yielded in a big announcement yesterday, as listeners may have heard, um, where the project is now on hold, um, is an example. That's, that's of, fantastic, by the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, it was amazing. Our um, Actually, our veterans organizer, Wesley Clark Jr., was there on the ground when they announced it. Um, he had just helped bring 2,000 veterans to Standing Rock, and they were all there just getting ready to hunker down, and this news came through, and it was unbelievable for everyone um uh anyway. absolutely yeah <laughs> no. and i mean so just just for our listeners who i mean we've all heard about climate change but in a nutshell to make sure that we're all on the same page going into this conversation what is climate change what what causes it and what what makes it a global emergency sure um yeah i mean i think that kind of this is the version that i heard when i was in maybe third or fourth grade when we first started talking about climate change. Um, and it's that, I mean, there's really a range. It's not just carbon dioxide, but it's carbon dioxide is the biggest um, kind of heat uh, trapping gas that humans emit into the atmosphere through various activities, um, largely the combustion engine that is in our, you know, vehicles, airplanes, et cetera. Um, a good bit of it now actually is methane contribution, either from, from agriculture from agriculture, or um, from hydraulic fracking operations. Um, and basically the, the effect is to create this greenhouse effect where imagine a glass dome, imagine like a blanket somehow over our atmosphere. And as the rays of the sun's heat go into it, they can't easily escape. I guess that's sort of the child's version of what is climate change that I like has stayed with me through all these years. Um, and in terms of what makes it an emergency, um, I think that there are a lot of um, what, what's behind some of these sort of gradualist ideas about how to address climate change is this idea that um, it's a, a linear progression, sort mm. of like a little bit more emissions mean a little less warming, a little less emissions is going to somehow help us get a little less warming. And um this kind of ignores the complexity of the whole climate system. Um, and that so far we are at around, I guess, one or 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming, depending on where you start your accounting from. Right. Um, and, you know, so, um, but the, but even at this sort of uh, point we've already committed to at least another half a degree of warming um no matter what we do so we're like basically at to all intents and purposes we're at 1.5 because is, i mean it, we're essentially there's there's an inertia about these things the 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 greenhouse gases that we've already put into the atmosphere will have the effect of increasing global temperatures um, by at least half a half a degree right well so th there's that i mean there's also the effect of um <laughs> this doesn't come up a lot and um yeah, I won't try to get into like the crazy science of it, partly because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> um, but the um, there's also we're currently emitting these aerosol aerosols into the atmosphere from our coal plants, mm -hmm. um, and these actually have a cooling effect on our atmosphere, counterintuitively. Um, so basically, as we phase out coal, um, this kind of this like catch twenty two bargain, we're actually adding back that warming. <laughs> into the atmosphere. So um, Michael Mann, the scientist, one of our advisors, sort of talks about this, that um, as a Faustian bargain that we've made <laughs> by emitting these things um, is that, um, you know, that's, it's going to come back for us. Um, but I think that the real crisis, I guess, is, I mean, uh, <laughs> both the fact that we are at 1.5, which is horrifying, and then it's also just the fact that... Um, you know, these are not necessarily linear systems. There are all of right. these uh, numerous, I guess, feedback um, sort of points uh, where the climate can go into feedback loops um, that can dramatically accelerate warming. Um, ironically, the day the day that Trump was elected, um, a study came out uh, w by some respected scientists saying that the atmosphere is actually potentially more sensitive to greenhouse gases the warmer it gets. Mm. So, like these past worst case scenario calculations saying that if we carry on as usual, we're going to hit maybe like, you know, 
four degrees by the end of the century Celsius. And they're saying that actually it's probably going to be closer to seven if their models are accurate. Um, and yeah, I mean, just this, you know, past few weeks we're seeing temperatures 20 degrees Celsius above average in the Arctic. Um, and they're kind of these vast areas of the planet that have been um, sort of, <laughs> it's kind of hard to even describe it, but it's like the more damage that we do to these systems, um, the more they're going to help us accelerate warming, either by releasing methane that's been trapped in the permafrost or as forests die, you know, all of that CO2 that they were holding there goes into the atmosphere. You know, soil, warming soils release carbon. It's just, it goes on and on. And the thing is that we're already seeing these things being triggered. Um at 1.2 degrees Celsius and this idea that we can just keep emitting for decades and and clean up the mess later right it, it might not... be, it gets increasingly difficult to clean up the mess the longer yeah. the mess goes on right, right? and you know we've I, uh, some of us have probably seen these charts of climate in uh, sorry of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, over um, you know in you know over the last uh, you know hundred thousand years which we can actually look at um, by by looking at the um, you know th- there's there's essentially uh, evidence that, um, buried in rock right how, in how much carbon there was in the atmosphere and you can look at these charts of the the amount of carbon in the atmosphere as a function of time and it's varied a lot over the last you know over the last few hundred thousand years right but the problem is that I mean and actually I think we can go back even significantly further than that and we can look back millions of years and see that the climate has been you know has varied wildly but never at this rate right that's the thing that seems so scary right when you look at these charts is that you know yes the climate has changed in the past but what humans have caused in the last 150 years the rate of change is geologically unprecedented mm-hmm. right so if there are natural sort of balancing mechanisms at work in nature we're putting those to the test and we just we don't know what's going to happen because it's this has never happened before. We've never cha- we've never changed the amount of carbon in the atmosphere as quickly as we have uh, in the last 150 years. Yeah, exactly. It's I mean, it's really kind of a great experiment that <laughs> there have been no past examples of. Um, one of maybe one of the darker things that's out there right now. But um, you know, you hear about kind of what is a runaway global warming effect, and it's kind of when this thing just sort of goes and goes and um, there's, you know, some scientists have theorized that Venus might have once been an earth-like planet. Mm. It's about the same size as us. There's some speculation that it may have contained oceans that have just just vaporized due Mm. to a runaway greenhouse effect. Mm. Um, And, you know, the scariest part of it to me is that no one knows that that's not what could happen here. Um, And it seems possible that we could within this century kind of, make the call for the rest of all future generations on earth, whether or not any life is going to be possible here. I mean, that's, that's the worst case scenario, but I think that, um, you know, it's kind of on us to take the science seriously and to take worst case scenarios seriously because, um, you know, what's at stake is kind of the future of all life on earth. Yeah. I mean, Um, I I can't, that's, I don't even have any words to even describe (laughs) the magnitude of that. Um, Yeah. And then, and then, and at the same time, even even the scenarios that are not necessarily worst case, um, that they they even those sort of better quote unquote scenarios pose existential threats at least to the human civilization. But I mean, it, you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, all of the biological mechanisms that we depend on as a civilization to to feed seven billion people on the planet to, uh, you know, to provide. Um, you know, to provide habitable ecosystems for us to live in. I mean, these, these are, these are not small things. These are, this is, there, there are delicate balances in play that, uh, you know, in place that, that give rise to um, the conditions that allow us to exist as a, as a global civilization. And the, 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 you know, you know, people talk about saving the planet and, and, and that's, I think, appropriate given the worst case scenarios, but even in the, in the, like the not so worst case scenarios, you know, the planet, might still be here but we're still we're still talking about us we're talking about human civilization we may not be and i think that's you know as um you know i think it's important to remember that we're not you know we're this is this is the ultimate self-interest yeah absolutely i mean i think that that was that's something that uh the climate mobilization has put a lot of emphasis on kind of from its outset um is that we don't even really try to brand ourselves or talk about ourselves as an environmental organization, though other people do. It's our focus has been always really explicitly kind of 
on um, on the human and on human civilization. And, you know, most of our members are not people who were necessarily um, the most kind of green in their lives, mm, <laughs> you know? Like, right. there are a lot of people who kind of uh, became just awake to the fact that this was a deeply personal um, struggle for them for whatever, for, you know, I mean, <laughs> you don't have to think hard about why that might be, but, I mean, right. you know, people who either... Um, have recently had children, for example, and have realized that, you know, they and their children definitely could very well live through something like the collapse of civilization as we know it. Um, and that that's actually, yeah, like that's, that's an even likelier scenario than the Venus thing. I mean, uh, given what we're already seeing now. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and, and what what I would really love to talk with you about in, you know, and, and get into some detail here is that, so on the one hand, you know, we have, you know, we, we have these models that predict either absolutely catastrophic um, damage to the environment and, you know, it, it destroying the planet's ability to support life. Um, and then the sort of, you know, better case scenarios where it's like, well, life will still here, be here, but we won't. Mm -hmm. um, so we're talking about we're talking about something that is you know unfathomably important, and yet as you say, people you know are we we as humans you know tend to kind of go through our lives we we kind of worry about the here and now, and that's kind of a challenge of being human is that we kind of occupy many different time scales at once. I mean, you know, I you know had to get down to the station here by you know ten to two to to get here in time to have this interview with you, right? But at the same time, you, you know, the next the next fifty years, the next hundred years, it's uh, we exist in those timescales too. And so, and I know that this is what you guys are trying to address. I know that you're trying to, um, get, you know, get everyone sort of thinking about climate change as a global emergency. And I, I know you've, you've used the metaphor with, with me in our conversations about, you know, if your house is on fire, you know, do you, do you sit there, you know, do you, do you, do you like vacuum the floor because the floor is dirty? I mean, you put out the damn fire. Um, so, so I'd love to talk with you about kind of the mechanisms um, by which, it, you know, that, that, that you guys think are, um, are causing us to sort of behave in a dysfunctional way in response to this, you know, house fire. Because, because we know that while people can, are capable of doing incredible things in response to emergencies and, you know, people, you know, have in a really um, kind of banal way of experience this when they pull an all-nighter before, you know, they haven't studied the whole semester or whatever. And now it's like a, the panic monster sets in and now I have to study. And, you know, you, you know, you can kind of learn a whole semester's worth of material in one night if you're sufficiently worried about it. Right. But, you know, for um, but also we, we see that people are sometimes um, react dysfunctionally to a crisis you know there are, you know there are people who find themselves in a burning house and don't move sometimes so that can happen also you know panic can ha be the sort of double-edged sword so and i know that you guys are um you know you guys are thinking you know a lot um about these mechanisms and what and what causes them so uh so to start with i mean climate change is, is difficult to see firsthand right and you know because co2 isn't visible and weather events don't in and of themselves reflect climate change so Given that, you know, you, we hear the, this consistent message from environmental organizations that the that the, there's overwhelming scientific consensus that man-made climate change is real and that it's it's caused unprecedented changes in terms of rates of change in um, in the climate over the last 150 years. What's the best way for people to see it directly? In other words, how do we at least start by saying by, by at least agreeing that our house is on fire and we need to do something about it? And that's the top priority. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I almost don't know where to start entirely. Um, I mean, I think that if people, I think that the evidence is actually there. Um, if people look for it, I mean, I'm sort of awake to it. <laughs> and I mean, I was in, um, I was actually in Alaska for much of last year. And I think that there's, you know, there's kind of this uncertainty all the time that people have, but in a, a space where people are actually kind of awake to the patterns of their life. And it was just spoken about in this casual way where people were, you know, like a 12 year old child that I talked to said, oh yeah, it's, it doesn't snow here anymore. It snowed here when I was, you know, mm. three. Mm -hmm. um, and now it just doesn't. And everyone's kind of adjusted to that reality. Um, and it's, yeah, like we, we sort of have this, um, you know, amazing under, amazing ability to ignore what's right in front of us. Um, and I think that a part of it, 
I think that to us what's more significant is not that the evidence is hard to see. I think the evidence is really easy to see. Um, if you pay attention to the news, I mean, there's, it seems like there's a historic catastrophic once in a thousand year flood or fire. I mean, Tennessee this week, like just, you know, these crazy things are happening and it's sort of partly the reason that it's not signaling to people that we're in an emergency is, um, I mean, one, because our systems are just failing us, uh, in this really dramatic way where it's really, I mean, the mass media does not connect the dots for people, (laughs) you know, Mm. it sort of says, oh my gosh, what, one after another, these one in a thousand year floods and hurricanes and things that, um, you know, we won't, we won't link this to climate change, you know, like we're going to not talk about that aspect of it. Um, so I think that people don't, and, and I mean, in general, just the fact that it's missing, um, from the kind of mainstream news dialogue for the most part, it wasn't talked about at the debates, you know, people talked about the national debt at the debates, you know, that's mm. not, actually a problem that we're facing right now right um <laughs> and uh it's sort of um the phenomenon that we kind of talk about is it's sort of pluralistic ignorance which is um more the situation when um you say walk by someone on the street who might be hurt but you're not sure if they're hurt and you don't know whether you should do something about it so mm. you look at everyone else around you for cues mm-hmm. um and say there's a police officer standing next to them doing nothing you know mm. saying nothing about it you're a lot you know, and everyone else too. And you're more likely to say, well, I must be the only one thinking this or noticing it. So I don't trust myself very much and I don't do anything about it. And I think our understanding is that that's kind of what's happening around climate change on a pretty massive scale. And, um, you know, so we're kind of trying to take, say that we can't trust the institutions, um, anymore, the media, the politicians, um, unions, I don't know what Mm. (laughs) are not, um, kind of, helping us with this um and it's kind of up to the public to to stand up and demonstrate to people that they are that they recognize that it's an emergency and that they are willing to change their lives for it um and you know if you can get a critical mass of people to enter into that state then you know emotions spread virally through societies and um you know it's (laughs) the the good news i guess uh is that it's not only the climate system that can enter into feedback loops that doesn't you know social movements don't grow linearly (laughs) um either um so we kind of have to mimic the climate graphs in terms of where we're at as a society and what we're willing to do and have a non-linear disproportionate response right. to, to this uh to yeah. this crisis absolutely i mean and i i think about how you know it's sometimes it, it can be you know a problem you know there are so many reasons to to react sort of dysfunctionally to a problem that you encounter i mean and and one can be that you just you literally have no idea what to do and the the importance of it like the magnitude of it, it that ironically the 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 fact that we are talking about all life on earth potentially is that it's so it's so it's so important of a problem that we become kind of like a deer in headlights we become overwhelmed and we don't know what to do and so the so almost as a self-protective mechanism we kind of you know pretend it's not real and we just kind of you know go through our lives whether we're whether that's explicit or not whether we're actively denying it or just kind of focusing on other things that can distract us from this from the fact that our house is on fire um so i'm i'm curious you know I, what I what I think we should talk about also is what what are the solutions? I mean, the, clearly the all hope is not lost because you guys wouldn't be doing what you're doing if it was, right? What what are the things that we can do as individuals and also politically, which is to say, as a group of people? You know, there there are things, of course, that we can do as individuals that that have meaningful impacts, but then there are certain things that we can't change as individuals that are that are systems that are you know at, at a national level or even a global level that have to change. Um, so what are what are the things that we need to do? Um, yeah, well, maybe, maybe I'll start with, um, talking a bit about what we talk about when we talk about fighting for a World War II scale climate mobilization. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that that, you know, to people who were not alive (laughs) during Mm -hmm. World War II might seem a little nebulous. Um, and I think that, um, I mean, essentially, I mean, what a mobilization is, it's usually to prepare for a war, but it's kind of when, we're facing a big crisis um, before World War II. It was the fact it was the threat of fascism um, in Europe, and um, we were we were in fact in denial about it. Mm, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. the New York Times was writing things like "Don't take Trump's anti-Semitism very seriously." It wasn't really widely um, 
it just wasn't widely understood. There was a real isolationist mood to the country. Um, and, um, and it was really Pearl Harbor that just woke everyone up basically overnight. And, so, and you're saying this. that that that, it, that that the Trump was actually writing um, about Hitler and saying don't you're 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 saying that they were they were actually saying downplaying the significance and the seriousness of what Hitler was saying. Um, yeah, that, I mean that that was something that people were doing, um, including the New York Times in America. Um, right. It was kind of not. Um, I don't know how to say it. it wasn't fashionable <laughs> the idea of going to war mm. um, and Pearl Harbor the Pearl Harbor attacks kind of made it that overnight um, and people uh, collectively sort of went into this period of mass societal mobilization it was coordinated by the federal government but um, there was real participation um, on all levels of society uh, there was I mean obviously people enlisted in the military um, but there's kind of, we transitioned our whole economy in the matter of months. Um, you know, they just, we just stopped producing consumer goods basically, um, and started producing material for war. We were way behind going into the war. Um, and, you know, citizens collected rubber, they collected materials, um, for this, every, there was a ban on pleasure driving. Like mm. you were trying so hard to conserve gas for military mm. use um, that people did not drive like for fun. Mm -hmm. Um, people were encouraged to carpool people. We grew 40% of veg uh, vegetables that people ate on people's lawns. Um, there's an intense rationing program. Um, and like, it, it was, <laughs> it was just a massive thing, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and it was, and everyone was participating, and everyone in, was some participating way. in some way. And there was, um, I mean, we had the most progressive income tax, um, in like history for this period of time. Um, huge investment in public transportation and um, full employment also pretty much. I mean, everyone could have a war job if they wanted to. Um, so I think that the reason we talk about this is that it's sort of um, our advocacy starts from a place of not what is politically feasible, not what is minimally interruptive to the status quo. It's mm -hmm. sort of what would we actually need to do um, with our emissions in order to have any hope of having a livable planet in the future. And that timeline, if you look at the science is a lot more like getting to net zero emissions by 2025, not these kind of 2050 or beyond targets that right. most people have been talking about. Um, and as far as we can see, so we're kind of, what if we start from that? What if we start from what is the science telling us? And then we look at what are, you know, what are any possible precedents for how we could get that done? And that's kind of what took us to this World War II. And it's not like this is a permanent state of society necessarily. Sure. Um, it's just there's an understanding of that this is a, a thing that societies have done in the past to deal with wars um, in times of crisis when we really were behind. Um, and, you know, there seems to us to be no good reason to not do that again for a crisis that, you know, honestly threatens a lot more people <laughs> Um, than even the threat of fascism did at the time. And um, so in terms of understanding just what that solution um, could look like, um, there is um, there are models. We have a victory plan on our website that kind of delves into how this could work um, and making sure that it's kind of a just transition, making sure that, you know, like these sort of quote-unquote mobilization jobs are you know, going like fair wages, all like all of these things, like there's real links to like the fight for 15 and there's sort of an opportunity to make this a transition into a better world beyond the mobilization as well. But, um, absolutely. Because these issues don't like, exist in isolation. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and for those of you just turning in, tuning in now, um, we're, uh, talking with Anya Granier from the climate mobilization and the website that you just referenced is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the climate mobilization.org. Um, yeah. So anyway, so that's a broad um, kind of overview of what we really mean when we say World War II scale mobilization. It's really the government coordinating us meeting these emissions targets much faster um, than is kind of currently perceived to be possible with the argument saying that, you know, we've done this for wars. Um, why wouldn't we do it to preserve <laughs> 
life Absolutely. on Earth as a category. Because I mean, um, like, I mean, to, to, to sort of use the analogy of World War II, I mean, here we're not talking about going and killing anyone. In fact, we're talking about saving lives. Right. There's there's yeah. there's, there's very little moral trade off here. Yeah. You know, we're talking about we're talking about yes, a radical shift in what our industries look like, what our economic activity looks like, but those can be good things in other ways too. And that's what I think you were just getting at was the, this alignment right. between you know not so it's not just about climate change. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, um, yeah, and we can't pretend, I guess, that this doesn't mean there won't be um, sacrifice, particularly for people who right now are used to living a very high consumption lifestyle. Um, however, the, <laughs> yeah, I think that sort of the, it's a myth that that lifestyle can continue for much longer um, just because we are in this ecological climate crisis um and you know our grandparents sort of accepted ration uh, rationing like they did all of these things um so that we could live now basically and i mean if you look at this the timeline is pretty much the same it's kind of like the people who are young right now um in 80 years is going to be when our grandchildren either say wow you know our they came together and they mobilized and they did all of this incredible hard work to make sure that we would still have a future to live in or um, they didn't. Right. <laughs> and those people are, and there won't be anything more that we can do about it basically at that point. Um, so yeah, I think that this is in a, it's not, I guess it's not just us saying this also, it's a number of, um, you know, a number of scientists, Michael Mann, even Bill Nye, the science guy, hmm. these are people who advocate this style of And if we response. can't trust Bill Nye, then who yeah, can we? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, and, it, and it's become, it's increasingly become a mainstream accepted idea. Um, one of our successes, though, you know, questionably relevant now is um, getting this language into the Democratic Party platform in July, um, sort of promising that we will mobilize um, on a scale not seen since World War II. Um, to fight the global climate emergency. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of the big picture. And I think that it is really important to us to um, really create education and uh, consensus around what is possible because there's this idea that, you know, if you just accept that we have to, that we're not, an, that we are an emergency, but for some reason we still have to play by kind of business as usual rules, then right. you can very quickly become hopeless and, um, I was hopeless before I discovered um, this material, basically, because I didn't um, have a good framework for thinking about how countries can respond to emergencies um, in a way that is kind of um, rational. And the other thing I would add, I guess, is that obviously the other thing that we had during World War II was Japanese internment camps, um, which is, you know, one of the reasons why... <laughs> we're glad that this isn't an actual war with an actual enemy. Um, and in contrast, the, you know, what we're seeing an absence of a kind of controlled transition like this is going to be escalating more refugee crises, more xenophobia, more kind of sort of hints at this sort of fascist style uh, response to the fact that there are going to be, you know, millions and millions of people in the world. Um, you know, Syria was kind of the first example of this. We just can't live where they used to live anymore and they're going to need to have somewhere to go. Um, and I think that now is a real moment where we choose how we respond to that. And I think the first step to that has to be actually mitigating and stopping the crisis that's forcing all of this migration and all of this sort of humanitarian crises happening right now. Absolutely. So unlike World War II, where we there, there, there were legitimate moral trade-offs, we did have to go to war, we had to kill people. And then, of course, we didn't have to and we shouldn't have, but there was, you know, but there were the Japanese internment camps. And so we violated human rights as a nation um, in, in so many ways on our own side um, in, in sort of responding to this emergency situation. But now it's not like that. Now it's that all, all the arrows point in the same direction. If you care about uh, the future, you know, future of the planet to support life. If you care about the quality of life that future generations of humans uh, will experience, and if you care about other human beings today, it's all all the signs point in the same direction, which is. And so, you know, I think it's kind of also important to sort of like to look at, you know, the when 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 the, when you're, the sacrifices that you're talking about, you know, when you say consuming less, I mean, we're talking about 
you know, we're, we're not talking about going back to the Stone Age here. I mean, far from it. We're talking about, you, you, you can just get, describe if you could a little bit about, you know, what that looks like. I mean, and, and what I'm trying to get at is that ultimately these changes don't necessarily mean that, that we need to be less happy. It's just that we're consuming, you know, we're consuming less and we're emitting fewer greenhouse gases. Right. Yeah, I think that, that I mean, that, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is, um, you know, it, it's important to realize that when we talk about this, you know, TCM, we don't have... And TCM kind of, being the climate mobilization. Yeah, sorry, the climate mobilization. We have no kind of ideological biases. <laughs> like if someone could prove to us that free market capitalism was the best solution to the climate emergency right now, we would be all for that. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't have a stake in what the system after this looks like. I mean, it's sort of, it's just clear that like we are in this dire emergency right now and that this is kind of the obvious response that has worked in the past in like a roughly similar situation um which required us to rapidly transition our um economy and i think that you know people who like people who sort of have a fear of um large-scale government um like control i think that what we sort of are advocating like some of those people are actually working with us and that their argument is that um you know uncontrolled climate change is just going to create more and more crises and going to encourage sort of more sort of fascist like seizing and consolidation of power and that right now we have this opportunity to step in and do this in this way that is is constitutional and is controlled and that like mm. you know is coming from the bottom up right now in a way that we can have some kind of popular oversight for um and accountability about in a way that you know, I don't think that if we wait another 20 years and there's enormous refugee crises and people are scared, um, you know, and we could have like a Trump on steroids take power saying that they're going to restore order. Like that's a much scarier scenario to me. It's terrifying. Um, yeah. The, you know, the, the, uh, those kinds of conditions are the last kinds of right. conditions that I would want to hand. I mean, given given Trump's messaging during the campaign, I mean, that's the last you know, that I kind of conditions that I would want to see him being president under, you know, and, and right. certainly, you know, and he's, uh, you know, there are more, there are others like him who will be around, you know, in, in, in 10 years and in 20 years, um, you know. Um, and, and sorry, and to return to your question about consumption, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think that this will be hammered out <laughs> more state by state. But the fact is that, I mean, right now, um, we use energy in such inefficient um, and kind of unsustainable ways um in so many areas of our lives but i think that like the biggest push would really just be to um electrify a lot of what is currently not electrified um mm. and to create like massive energy efficiency infrastructure and there's evidence that we could actually reduce just how much energy we use by about 80 percent without like huge sacrifices to our quality of life um and and the other thing that i'd say is that i mean in terms of people like yes the the sacrifices that will be made in the long run um if we don't stop this crisis will be more things like famine and like mm. disease and fire and flood and sort of things that will require people to make um you know sacrifices in uncontrolled ways um that are unjust uh and that's sort of what we've already been seeing and i think that um it's it takes up a lot of energy honestly right now for people to kind of keep the knowledge that all of these things are happening kind of in the back of their head and not let it impact um, their daily lives. Um, and I think that, you know, people people were actually surprisingly happy during this World War II scale mobilization because mm. they were already hurting from the depression. Um, and now they had jobs and now they were all, every citizen was asked to participate in this heroic national purpose. Um, and, you know, there's evidence that actually psychologically feels good to be making you know, limited personal sacrifices towards something that you see as um, like a necessary common goal. And this seems like the most intense version of that potentially um, that anyone will ever get to experience. Like, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to wake up every day knowing that whatever I'm doing um, at my job is sort of contributing to this, you know, amazing national effort that everyone is participating in, rich, poor, business people, labor leaders, um, to just make sure that we get to all keep living here. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, to be um, to be able to to be so deeply aligned 
with one another and also with the with our own interests and the future of you know and the and the interests of future generations is such an amazing it's really an amazingly beautiful idea you know it's an amazingly beautiful vision you know and and i mean also i mean to continue the analogy of 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 world war ii um you know there were so many great things technologically that came out of that effort also, I mean, and economically as well. I mean, it's like the quality of life that people experienced in the 50s and 60s was, you know, in many ways a direct result of that alignment of effort together. So it's like, so we're not, you know, we're not saying, so, so, so what, I, what, I, what I explicitly have never heard you say talking about climate mobilization is, um, you know, the hell with everything else we need to just focus only on climate change and we need to, and, and, you know, and, and life is going to be significantly worse, but you know, if from here on in, because, you know, because we won't be able to, uh, you know, be burning all these fossil fuels and relying on these sort of, um, you know, re- like naive ways of powering mm-hmm. our, our civilization. Um, you know, what I, I hear an optimistic vision, um, that, that, you know, of what this mobilization looks like and what happens afterwards. Yeah. I mean, I think optimistic as optimistic as it can be i think this is kind of the only uh you know really the only alternative that i see right now is still open to us and is still possibly viable to this future that just looks like kind of you know kind of the trump administration (laughs) carrying out what Mm. they want to do i mean it seems like it's really a prescient vision of what a future in which we don't do this looks like and it looks like kind of increased corporate control of our government it looks like a lot of them versus us thinking yeah and you know kind of it looks like sort of more fear and more divisiveness because it's you know it's going to be chaotic it's going to be um you know these things are going to be happening no matter what no matter how hard we work there's going to be increased stress on basically everything that supports human life um going forward for the foreseeable future um if if we don't i mean and and by virtue of climate change yeah i mean and that and that's what happens if we do mobilize i mean the the best case scenario is that we ride it out and that we get to a point where we're going carbon negative and that we sustain that for long enough um that eventually we get back to like the safe climate that we started out with um but you know for the next decades as far as we can tell right now um you know barring an unprecedented breakthrough of some sort Mm. um we're kind of locked into um you know what what's going on now and an escalation of that um and that's one of the things that's always kind of scared me is that the as climate change continues dealing with the, the 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 current effects of climate change occupies it takes up a lot of resources and occupies a lot of attention which and 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 we need a lot of attention to be uh focused on what we actually do to stop climate change and reverse it i mean so so the more so as you you talk about nonlinear effects i mean the more the more extreme weather events we see because of climate change the more the more um local climate change and in a way that makes it uh, impossible to sustain the peoples who have been living in those climates, um, and now those, and now we have the refugee crises that you're talking about. All of all of dealing with all of that stuff in and of itself requires resources just to manage that. Never mind actually stop climate change. So it's, right. it's so it, it, as you you know have I, the message that I'm hearing is there is absolutely no time like the present. I mean, now <laughs> is the right time to be to be dealing with this. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that's kind of a Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I think that there is kind of this other um, vision of climate change messaging um, in which people say, oh, well, it's happening. And now now the focus should be on adaptation, not on, you know, mitigation. And obviously it has to be on both because, you know, if all we do right now is focus on adaptation, things are going to change too fast for us to ever actually adapt to yeah um and i mean our our, what we we um, need to do is it it seems to me that the 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 issue is that we need to slow it down enough so that we can adapt to it right yeah Yeah. and i think that yeah i mean really what what i really see as um the inspiring potential of this present moment i think is the ways in which this is a crisis that kind of stretches our morality and kind of you know, I think that the best thing that could happen right now, and I do think it's possible, is that this is going to be 
the thing that finally forces us to reimagine what stories we tell ourselves about like who we are mm. as people. And I think the dominant story about us for the last, I don't know, 50 years has been one that people are kind of inherently motivated by selfish self-interest and are kind of these, you know, this sort of free market vision of who people really are. And I think that that's what's being tested already by climate change and that, you know, how do we treat refugees? How do we treat people who didn't so do anything to cause this crisis and are the first to suffer from it? And, you know, how can we stretch kind of our moral understanding of, um, you know, what it, what it means to be a person <laughs> alive in this time and what are kind of the moral and ethical implications of that. And the first one, I think, from our perspective is that, you know, you can't, um, you can't go on pretending that you living a normal life is a feasible and be kind of laudable laudable, yeah, yeah or you know that it's not enough to be kind of a law-abiding citizen who takes care of your family because you know if you don't get involved in this sort of larger struggle then you know the kids that you're going to work to provide for right now aren't going to have a future essentially um and or or nor will anyone else's kids so i think that there's kind of um, right. It doesn't really matter how many millions of dollars <laughs> you stow away in a bank account if, if you know, right. if the climate doesn't support a human civilization. Yeah. And I think that's a really it is a really hard mentality switch for people to make. And I think that part of the reason the people in the climate mobilization um, who have kind of okay, uh, are throwing away sort of career prospects, savings, accounts, all of this stuff and kind of just going all into the struggle is that um you know, many of us don't have families right now, but, you know, at least I, I, I haven't given up hope <laughs> yeah. that that I will. And, you know, the thing that I wake up with every day is sort of wanting to have a child and to tell them that we're actually handling it and not kind of the experience that I had, which was hearing about this terrifying thing when I was in fourth grade and then getting out of college and realizing that no one is handling it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, when I imagined my own life, um, you know, as in elementary school, you know, when I was like eight years old, I just kind of imagined that at this point in my life, that by this point in my life, I would have kids. And, you know, and, and of course, a big reason why I don't is that it's, it's really difficult to imagine, um, you know, it, it seems like there's a hell of a lot of work to do, let's say, before it seems like a good idea to do that. You know, just for me personally. So, but, and yet I maintain, I'm, I'm as I'm optimistic as you are that, you know, that, that we will be able to get the work done and that it'll make sense. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, you know, by, you know, that, and, you know, I do hope to be able to tell kids of mine that, you know, that I came together with, with everyone else and that we actually, that we did what we needed to do. So what does it, what does it look like? I mean, what do you, what do you, what, what at this point are you, are you asking uh, when you talk about not relying on, on institutions, but the people directly taking action, what are you asking listeners of the show and everyone else to do? Um, well, the first thing I would ask people to do um, is really, I mean, to educate, I think educating yourself has to be the first step um, because this isn't, it's not an easy thing to process, first of all, just it's an individual process to kind of, allow yourself to even have this realization that you're not really living in the world that you thought you were living in. Mm. Um, and I think that undergoing that process and sort of trying to um, break through the, what I see is sort of the, the social taboos that exist right now around kind of discussing um, climate change, like seven in 10 Americans don't hear about it in the news. They don't hear about it from the media and kind of, um, you know, arguably the most important thing you can do is to to talk about it, <laughs> mm -hmm. to sort of just to spread the word because no one's doing it for us. Um, and I think that, you know, really what, what changes things is not who is president or who their appointees are and, you know, kind of breaking out of this obsessive focus with who is in Washington um, and kind of sort of sitting with the knowledge and realizing the power that you have, um, for good resources. Um, sorry, I know I'm running out of time, but, <laughs> uh, go, going to the climate as, mobilization. As are we all apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the climate mobilization.org does have, um, a lot of resources and, 
Mm-hmm. We're kind of still fine tuning the points of our um, specific action plans post Trump. Um, as you can imagine, many of our previous action plans were had a wrench thrown into them um, by mm-hmm. this election. Absolutely. Um, but it is something that is actively being worked on. And I think that, you know, the greatest hope for me is that this election really is our Pearl Harbor moment and kind of the moment where everyone realizes that, um, you know, this thing is only going to go down if all of us collectively make that decision. But that's, that's how history happens. It's not, it doesn't come from Washington. It really, um, it does come from the people, um, realizing, um, just that the system doesn't keep going, I guess, unless we keep recreating that power of the powerful, um, that, you know, it's only by us sort of continuing to go about our lives and pay our taxes and follow the laws, like staying off, you know, private property that has Mm -hmm. fossil fuel infrastructure on it. That's how the system keeps going. And I think that, you know, it's really stunning to see how successful, um, social movements have been in the past. Um, and you know, we're seeing this right now that, um, you know, if you, if you can change the public mood in a country enough, um, it's really hard for people, you know, it's pretty much impossible for people to go against that for any significant period of time. Um, so I think that sort of changing, um, and, and changing that mood can start anywhere. It can start in your church group. It can start in your, um, school, your community, um, just creating local pockets of sanity in an increasingly insane world seems like the place to start from our perspective, but you can find out more at the climatemobilization.org. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to remember that we are a dynamic species. You know, we are, we're a species in change and we're a civilization in change. And just as an adolescent, you know, might crash the car once or twice, uh, you know, in the process of growing up, um, and, and do some dumb things, uh, you know, that adolescent 10 years later is, you know, is, is a, is a functional adult, you know, and, and I think our species is kind of going through the same, you know, at least our civilization is going through the same kind of growth pains here where, um, you know, we, we have to recognize that we are not, uh, an inherently destructive species. We're just kind of, uh, we're, we just got the car keys, you know, pretty recently and we're trying to figure it out and I think we will. So Anya, thanks so much for being on the show today. The conversation will continue. Uh, uh, go, you know, if you're listening, go to theclimatemobilization.org, um, and we can keep the conversation going online uh, on Facebook in the What Now New Haven group. Uh, this is all of us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. We'll see you next time.